I'm ready. Okay. Jacob, I have a question for you. Uh-huh. And, I, you know, I've been, we've been talking and everything, but about your Teach Me Teacher, we do that periodically, talk about that. I listen to it once in a while, but, mm-hmm. you know, you talk to a lot of uh, experts. How has that impacted your teaching, talking to these experts? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, just in a overall stance, it's definitely made me a better teacher. I mean, even back when I wasn't talking to like quote unquote experts and I was just talking to the teachers in my campus, some of them were experts. Some of them were new. Some of them were hired, you know, when I was hired, right? Uh, we, it's, it was more of the conversation that helped me the most because there's, you know, there's a thing that happens when like I, it happens a lot in writing, but you might not know when, like you don't, you don't know what you believe until you put it down. Right. Sometimes you don't know what you believe until you say it, or sometimes you say things and you're like, well, as I'm saying this, I see the flaws. So just by having conversations over and over again with no agenda other than having a conversation about something, uh, that really developed me, I think, as an educator because I, I mean, season one, if other than like weird and wonky audio, <laughs> if, if that, if that could be summed up in any way, it was just like, I mean, you're watching like the blossoming of, of a young teacher who really didn't fully know what he was doing, but was infinitely curious. I think that was, that's like what defines season one. And then season two, you know, starting with Donalyn Miller of all people, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for our like hour and a half conversation we had, you know, that was such a huge moment for me just because she had changed my teaching and then to be able to ask her certain things and, uh, have those, those being able to read the work of people I massively respected and then be able to ask them questions that, that eventually became what teach me teacher was as I would come into contact with work or people on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever. And I reached out to them and it became easier and easier to get them on the show because the show had more credentials. So like it, it, it was, it was less scary to approach people. Um, but even like all of that to say though, like when I have conversations, I, they, they change me all the time. Like I had, uh, the most recent example of this is, um, John Carippo over there. Uh, he does the edu protocols and he's, he's been in education forever. He's been an administrator. Now he, he's so willing to help. And I clashed with him a little bit on Twitter that I had him on the podcast and he changed my perspective on what he was doing and what he was saying. And he's changed my practices. I'm going to ask you real quick. I'm going to flip this on you real quick. How many times I I complain about programs all the time. I complain about tech infiltrating education all the time, right? Those Mm -hmm. are like my, I don't hate either of those, but I'm extremely wary of those. Correct? Correct. Now, how many times recently have you either seen or heard me talk about something like uh, Look It? Or any of those programs. How many times recently have you heard me? A few, right? Well, actually, you're the one who had to show me how to do one of them because you were doing it in your classroom. And I think that was Blookit. So I was quite shocked. So I was surprised. He he's the reason. He is the exact <laughs> oh, okay. reason. Because right. I, I had him on and he told like he totally was like, no, like this isn't stuff for deep learning, but he was like a part of what's in education, there is low, uh, there, there is like the shallow learning that has to happen too. you, you know, you have to build background knowledge. You have to build basic stamina of certain things. Kids need to have, there's some memorization that still has to happen. Even though we love discovery learning and all of that memorization has its place, which I think is going to fit into our conversation today, but it has its place into, uh, what we have to do. And he was like, these tech, like he was like a lot of these programs, the reason why people hate them like you, he was like, cause you understand good teaching and you see how, uh, teaching is being 
like it's it's being simplified to this and it's being used badly. He was like 100% these programs get used badly all the time. But he was like you he was like we just have to be smarter than the problem. We don't have to use these programs the way they tell us to use them. We can use them to support our best practices. And I was like, that's a really good point. And you know, and he just, he like walked me through that. So he literally changed like that, that podcast episode is called this conversation changed how I feel about tech. And it was true. It really like, he didn't, he didn't like take away my fears. What he did was justify that. And then he said, Hey, but here's a cool way to actually do it. And I, that would have never happened. Um, if the podcast didn't exist, uh, just having these these talks um, and and building my own knowledge and bringing on people who I don't necessarily fully agree with. Like I love talking to my teaching idols, like Kelly Gallagher, Penny Kittle, Donald Miller, Alfie Cohn, all of them. Uh, I almost said Nancy Atwell. I haven't had her on the podcast, but oh my god, I, if I could ever get her on, that'd be amazing. <laughs> but you know, Aunt Laura, Rob, like all of these people, like they're my teaching idols, and I just love having them in my circle being able to ask them questions, but I equally grow from the people who are just willing to bring new ideas to me and and challenge me and everything. And I think it's a healthy aspect of human life that I honestly, I think in a, in a broader scope, um, because of the way social media exists today, because the way everyone is so polarized, we genuinely do not have good conversations with people that disagree with us anymore, like in a large part. And I feel like uh, part of my goal with Teach Me Teacher as it's evolved is to bring on more people with diverse perspectives because I think we only win. Like it, it, it might not persuade you a certain way and it might persuade me or whatever, but we only win when we understand each other, right? Like I think that is, and I think that's the major problem in America today on every aspect is we just don't understand why someone thinks something or why someone could believe this or why you can believe something opposite of me and still be a good person. You know what I mean? Like we've had, right. we've, we've moralized so many issues um, that I, I think that it just, it's developed me in an infinite number of ways. So I don't know. I, I, yes, it, it's developed me. It's, it's, it's made me a better teacher. It makes me think all the time. And yes, as episodes as early as this season have actually changed what I do in the classroom. So uh, does that answer your question? <laughs> well, I think it does. And with that, welcome to Craft and Draft. And that's Jacob Chastain. I'm Pam Ochoa. And he'll probably repeat what I just said. But uh, today, I guess I know that's the old, you know, when you're talking, you have this certain pattern. I do that in the classroom, too. There's certain things that I say. And so we, we, we do this. But welcome, everybody. And, um, well, here we are, Jacob, having another episode and I'm excited. I think today we're going to talk about what direct instruction versus indirect. This, uh, I I love this concept though too, right? Because one back up, I, I, it's funny that we, we have, you know what we say, like in the classroom, like we have certain phrases, Mm -hmm. we have certain phrases that build up on the podcast and, uh, it's funny how things keep up, but I mean, it's, this is episode 72, of craft and draft one that's wild to think about, but I mean, that's 72. Like if every episode's an hour, which some are longer, some are shorter, but if every episode is an hour, that's 72 hours of me and you just listening to each other, talk back and forth separate from our real world conversations. So, um, and, 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 and we have a new episode, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we have a new episode every week, right? Yeah. So that's 72 weeks ago. And I just want you to know, probably about 73 weeks ago, Jacob shows up at my house in the middle of COVID, <laughs> hands me the microphone and says, here, we're starting next week. And I'm like, I don't even know how to plug it in. <laughs> That's, That's exactly how I tell you. That's how, that's how the the beauty of it. That mic in front of Ochoa over there is the the mic that Teach Me that's Teacher right. was built on. I had that mic for a long time, but in any case, yes, in, in direct instruction uh, versus indirect or versus uh, P- Q 
kids working independently and everything. When does direct instruction apply? When do we take it down? How much direct instruction should happen? I think these are great conversations to have in workshop because I feel like sometimes we, we badmouth some of the more traditional things, myself included, uh, without giving it its due. So we're going to meander through this conversation, uh, this this topic, and see where we go. But welcome to Craft and Draft, ladies and gentlemen. All righty. I also do that every after all the splits of the I go all righty. <laughs> you know what's funny is I so I on hour to hour basis I podcast Teach Me Teacher is banked. I do Teach Me Teacher in spurts. Like sometimes I don't do a podcast for Teach Me Teacher, like record one for like months, depending on how much I bank. But we do this pretty much weekly, right? Yeah, we don't have um, anything banked. <laughs> ever. So <laughs> we uh, when we have these talks, because of that, when I'm doing my sign-offs on Teach Me Teacher, I all I, now I'm starting to do all the craft and draft mannerism so i'm just like oh my god it's all the same at this point to me so like there's times where i'm like you know that we are here and i'm like wait there's no one else here on teach me teacher i'm alone here in this room i'm alone so, i'm all alone i already said goodbye to the person i was talking to that's right well alone. i do my not to ruin any illusions of stuff but my outros are always done alone because i, I never do the outro with my guest because they're I, I don't want to waste their time because they're usually busy. And so, I, so all, all, 90% of the time I hold them longer than what I said I would to because I always push for a little more conversation. Um, so I do those alone and I do this. I'm like, wait, this isn't the right intro. I have to go, how do I, how do I close Teach Me Teacher again? So in any case, direct instruction. That's funny. Direct instruction, Miss Ochoa. Here's the thing. We've – in. I I kind of came in maybe when this wave was already started in teaching. Um, I'm going to rely on your knowledge for this as well. Uh, but when I kind of came in, you know, I over and over again, uh, I was met with trainings and stuff that said, you know, we want to limit direct instruction. We want to we want to keep direct instruction kind of in its own little bubble. Yes, direct instruction has to happen, but it was like. 15 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. The smaller you can get it, the better. Um, and so I've kind of always been a part of this tradition of teaching, so to speak, where uh, we I've always been told this. And so that was kind of molded itself into my philosophy of a lot of this. But, you know, in realistic terms, like I've come to value direct instruction uh, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, I want to, before we jump into what it is now, I want to just let you speak for a minute on, you know, how have you just in what people have encouraged, whether it's trainings, whether it's your own philosophy, whether it's district philosophy, how has direct instruction wax and wane, so to speak, uh, throughout the years of its importance slash like almost its, its banishment from current thought? Yeah, well, you know, I came in in the late 80s, but uh, but I went to school all through the 70s, right, 70s and 80s, and I just remember the teacher giving us uh, either a long lecture and we had to take notes, and then they would finish it up with a worksheet, a ditto, which we all enjoyed because I don't know if you've ever experienced a ditto, Jacob. Have you ever experienced a ditto? I don't know what that is. You don't even know what I'm talking about. But the ditto is a ditto machine, and it had this purple ink. And all of you older people will understand and go, <laughs> yes. And they're like right now going, oh, my gosh, I forgot about the ditto. And then so the teacher would hand it out because, you know, we're all teachers now. We understand that this was the last minute. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I finally found what I was looking for. I need to go run copies. But the copies were not done by Xerox. The copies were done by the ditto machine and the ditto. That's machine even wild in. to me. Like I know, hang yeah. on, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but <laughs> <laughs> this whole, the Xerox, like this is something that I know because it's a holdover from something like I've heard this term, but the fact that uh -huh. you referenced it like that just blows my mind. Just the copies of Xerox, like, no, it's not from yeah. the Holy grail of copies. <laughs> like that's just a funny <laughs> thing. Anyway, keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh no. So you know how, when you first, 
get your copies off of the Xerox machine. You know, they're hot from all the, you know, the heat that's generated by the light and all that stuff. But in a ditto machine, they're wet. Okay, they're wet and they're purple because that ink, they've gone through that toner and that toner and it's, and it has a smell to it. And I'm telling you, they didn't show this in Ferris Bueller, but they should have. The guy handing out the ditto and everybody at the same time taking their paper, putting it to their face and just taking a deep breath of smelling that ditto. <laughs> we all did it. <laughs> I get it. I get it. It has a certain like, you know, and so, uh, yeah, those days are gone. That was my, I, I, we did dittos back, no scantrons. I remember when they first Wait, brought so, out hang the scantron. On. It, I'm, Wait, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to understand what it. Well, hang on. With all of this, I'm just going to tell you, all we had was direct instruction. That's what you had. All right, keep going. <laughs> I don't know. I still understand what a ditto machine is. Is this a copier? Yes, it's like a copier, and it's a round cylinder, and it has a I'm handle. Google this as I as you <laughs> describe. Google it. I have to. And you have a toner, and you have this uh, a master. The master doesn't look like the rest of them. It's kind of like a a paper, like a you know, kind of um, I can't remember the paper, but it's almost like a print, like a print oh, paper. Also referred to a rexograft. Oh, okay, or, okay. Or, I didn't know the official name. Oh, I think it's a it's a printing method invented in 1923. <laughs> and we used it all the way up until 19. I t- started teaching in 1987, and I got my copies off of the Ditto machine. Oh yeah, I I'm see, telling I see you. What you're saying it's almost it's almost like a it's like a if you took a a modern like uh, poster maker and just said, hey, this is a pre-poster maker. Like, that's what it looked like. That's I know that's not what it is, but that's what yes. it looks like. You know what I mean? Or like a laminator yeah. almost. Yeah, it's like a like a newspaper print. Yeah, and it has a... That's but so it comes... Yeah, and you put your copy paper, which just looks just like the Xerox paper, but it's... <laughs> and then it gets all wet, and, it, and it's all purple ink. Yeah, and... I see the purple. <laughs> <laughs> and you snip it, and there's nothing like it. So, see, we were... <laughs> I know that. So it wasn't hot off the press. It was wet off the press. You could always tell when the teacher was at last minute because the papers were wet. So anyway, yeah, that's it. That's it right there, right? That's I'm it. sharing my uh-huh. screen for. I know people can't see this, but I'm. I'm no, I shared can't. my my Zoom screen with people just to make sure. Yeah, mimeograph. Right I think so. I saw that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So we had a ditto machine, and that's what. What, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I used. So anyway, you know, so you really, that's, that was our worksheet. That's what we did. And that's what you did. And I did it. I did the lecture with the ditto copy. I did it. And then when the zero, and then when the Scantron came out, I mean, that right there, that was a game changer. Cause now the kids could just bubble in there are little answers and you could just go and have it graded like in just a few. And I remember needing help because I didn't know how to scan them. When I was young, I was like in my twenties. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so the lecture to me uh, at that time, that's really what you had. You had the chalkboard and I do miss my chalkboard, but you had the chalkboard and you had your, your, um, OPEC machine or, you know, your transparency machine or your Elmo, depending on what brand you have and um, projector and transparent projector. And you worked off of that. And at the end of the day, your hands were blue. Your noses were filled with ditto. And, uh, and your, you know, and chalk everywhere. It was great. I miss those days. That's real teaching right there, Jacob. <laughs> that's, that's coal miner teaching. But, but so with all that, I'm just saying that when I first started teaching, they really they really moved the Madeline Hunter 
direct teaching where you had a, a focus or anticipatory set uh, that was teacher guided. It might be, they thought it was student guided, but it'd be like a quote or something that would get the kids warmed up for the day. And then you would lecture and, and they didn't really put an emphasis on your time. But there was a big emphasis on homework. So really, at the end, there was just enough time after you start after you talked to the students that you would, you know, tell them how to do the worksheet. And then that would be their next day's homework. So, That's what so I class, remember. So class was literally direct teach and kids were responsible uh-huh. for doing the work a lot outside of, times. of class. A lot of times. It sure was. Uh, you know, maybe not everybody. Sure. Uh, but yeah, that's that was my experience, and that is how I first started teaching. That's how I was because that's what I knew, and I did. I could do Madeline Hunter. I could do it really well, and I still think, probably do it a little bit. Do you think that uh, the way the family structure was at this time lent itself to that being successful? Where there was, it was much more, you know, like a nuclear family was still very much at the core of the, the American way, so to speak. Like it, it, things hadn't changed so much. So kids were more apt to do that. I don't know. Cause in my head, I'm thinking like, oh my God, like we, I, I don't even ever assign homework because it's not, it's not just not going to happen. Like there's. Our, I mean, we have teachers on our campus who that kind of fight this battle, and kids either stay late, come early to get the homework done that they're supposed to do at mm-hmm. home, or there's some teachers, and I don't necessarily agree with this method, but there's some teachers who like, hey, if you don't get the homework done, now you have detention or whatever, and so it's just this constant battle. And for us, we've always just said, you know, if kids are, it, look, my whole thing is like, if kids can. If I can encourage them to love their books enough or love their pieces enough, they're going to work at home. And a lot of them do, uh, mm-hmm. especially, um, I mean, both sides, both readers and writers end up doing that. And I've kind of subscribed to that, but I can't even imagine having talking, you know, for th- or doing a lecture for 30, 40 minutes or whatever. And then be like, all right, now go do this work and have it come back tomorrow. Like I just couldn't even imagine that working. And I'm asking in my head, I'm going, what made that work? Then I don't. Do you have an answer to that? Well, I don't. I don't know. Uh, maybe. I mean, it could be. I, I know that. I mean, did it not uh, work? And we just, and that people like just accepted. What I came think in? it. Yeah, maybe it. I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe that's where we failed to begin with. I don't know, but um, I don't know. I mean, I I do remember. You know, as I was growing up, almost all of my, very few of my friends had divorced parents. They probably got divorced when they got older, but most of them stayed together, you know, but I don't know what it was like in other places, but my parents were teachers. So most of my friends were probably teacher friends and I don't know, you know, that's kind of coaches and stuff like that. We all ran together, but what what made, what made me ask that question was, so I've, Mm -hmm. I've, uh, somehow <laughs> developed a bunch of friends through uh, Twitter through that are like they're like Catholic private school teachers, right? And so mm-hmm. they they you know they have traditional values, conservative values. They're Christians, so they have you know their beliefs about like divorce and the the nuclear family and stuff. And what what that relationship with them has fostered is this uh, not a, a denouncing of kind of the the new way people live. Um, but the more of the fact that like the family unit was very significant, um, in American tradition, right? It, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was embedded into the culture oh, because yeah. of, uh, of religious reasons, but also just, you know, social reasons and everything else. Like, I think that's just kind of common. Now there was, we can go deep into that, but I don't really want to, but the, the yeah. whole con, but the concept of that though, this, the family unit and how valuable that is to, uh, j- just kids in general, right. Just having a core family, you know, today that looks different. Um, but I think, you know, one of the major challenges, like even for our students on our campus today is a lot of them just don't have n- 
like a, a normal world to go home to. And what I mean by normal is I mean like stable, right? I have students who like, I was just listening to their stories this week, right? And they were like, I was like, oh, you know, how was Christmas break? And they were you're like, oh, you know, I was with my mom, you know, I haven't seen her in a while. So like just being around your, your parent who is quote unquote a stranger. And I was talking to another student who struggles in a variety of ways. And they were like, yeah, you know, I was, we just moved in with another couple and I'm staying at a different house with different kids and stuff. And it's that in existence, right? Ignoring like your, whatever you believe about what the family should look like, just the, the constant change that happens in, in the modern world of these kids, not really knowing what home's going to look like. I know what that feels like as a teenager. That is a substantial, uh, n- that has a substantial negative impact uh, often on kids focus their academics how much time and energy they can spend focusing on stuff and i think that that that's something i never thought about until i came across people who were you know advocating for you know quote unquote quote unquote more conservative values but it, it, the right. the concept's the same whether conservative liberal doesn't matter just the concept of having something core that you can go home to right that's your support system and everything i think that's uh that's something that I hope that as a society that we go back to. It doesn't have to look like, you know, what it was in the 50s or the 40s or whatever. It can be different because times have changed. But the just that core, having people value this is our family. This is what kids – this is what our kids are going to come home to. They're going to have the support system. I think that is – I don't know. I, I think that is under – that that change to where that doesn't happen so much in in the communities that need it the most the communities that struggle the communities that are that are not so fortunate to have financial backing or anything like that i think that really is at least one of the pillars that uh that causes education to struggle that is something that we can't control i don't know and that that's what made me think of when you're talking about like sending kids home with homework and stuff i'm like well when you think about like the support system you have to have for homework to work well. I mean, it's a, it's a significant one, is it not? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, having that stable time uh, every night that you do the homework. I know that my parents, of course, they were teachers, and there was a certain time it was homework time. And then after that, we could do things, but you couldn't do anything until you got your homework finished. So you really had another hour to two hours of school when you got home. And my mom that, you know, I said my parents were teachers, but my mother stayed home with us until I was 12. So she instilled, and I mean, that time was monitored. So it wasn't, but now I think what you're talking about with these kids, when they have to go home, they have to go home and help. They don't, they, and, and I think they had to go home too. like my dad. I mean, they grew up in the fifties, right. And the forties and the fifties. And they, they grew up on the farm. My dad talks about how he got up every morning at four o'clock and did the milking and all of that stuff. And worked in, you know, whatever else he had to do, mend the fences, make sure the cattle, whatever they all had to do. And, and, um, and school, the work came first. So I know that, I mean, that's one reason why we have our summer breaks was so that the kids could go home and help with the harvest. I mean, my dad talks about driving a tractor in the summertime where he would, he would do the night shift and he was a ninth grader. So I think that they've always had to help, especially in impoverished situations. I think always. But I think also, though, the type of work that our kids did back then, like my mom and dad and me, I think I think we prepared our students to do a job, maybe a factory job. And really what we needed them to do is to be able to listen follow directions and do exactly what we want you to do and put the cog in there just exactly right. And then when they got that job, that was forever. I mean, you did that for, I mean, you got a pension and everything in the end. You stayed with the same job, excuse me, over and over. I mean, all your life. I mean, now our students and your group, I think, even I would say, or right after, and I'm talking about your age versus that, which is my son's age. Yeah. But but they're looking at you guys are looking at five different careers in in your lifespan. Well, 
we didn't do that. I mean, I've been a teacher for 35 years. You just, that's what I was. That's what you do. You, that's your career. You choose your career and that's what you do. And if you don't, then you get a job and you keep that job and you might stay at that job forever and retire in that job. And so uh, factory jobs and different things like that. And I don't see that happening now. So I think we're actually teaching to a totally different environment and our students have totally different needs. And I think what's important now, what we have to do, and I think we're going back to the idea of direct instruction versus indirect instruction. Indirect instruction, of course, to me is student-centered, right? And so you have to give these students problems to solve. They have to learn to think for themselves. They have to learn to be creative because we don't know what they're going to be doing. We do not know what, I mean, what this future entails for them. I mean, we don't know what's coming. I mean, just look what's, um, and, and so we have to get them ready for that. But to finish that sentence, I was talking to my parents today and, you know, my, my dad's eight, he'll be 80 here soon. And my mom's in her t- uh, later seventies. And so I went over there and visited with them and they were talking about, think about dad mentioned said, think about when you were in the people who survived World War I. And if they lived, if they were like 10 during World War I, and they lived to be 75, look at all the changes that they lived through. They lived through the Great Depression. They lived through wars. How many wars did they live through? How many busts did they, you know, economic busts did they live through? How many diseases? I mean, you had the you know, you had um, the the Spanish flu, you had all of these things. And so over time, you know, that's what they had to live through. Well, that's that generation. Well, this generation is now living through what? COVID? I mean, a, a global environment, a global society. I mean, it, it's, we don't even know what's going to happen in the future. So I think it's kind of fascinating to think about when we are actually teaching these kids now, what year will it be? When they're 50, what is it going to look like? And I think that's that's something we have. We are not preparing our kids for today. We need to be preparing our kids for the future. Well, what I think what you're really <clears throat> honing in on there was the reason why, uh, you know, facilitating or indirect instruction really became uh, the push in education, right? Because like you mm-hmm. said, we... Kids like the bell system even is really like a remnant of, you know, the factory mindset and everything like that. that. And, and we, we've obviously moved away from that, but some of that stuff still exists. It really depends on where you are in the country. Um, and, and the, and the communities you serve, you know, like there's, you know, we, I know there's a lot of rural, uh, educators who listen to this stuff where, you know, like really good jobs for a lot of people is, you know, going to work on the oil field or, mm-hmm. um, doing things that are just something that isn't always, we always think of like, you know, uh, Silicon Valley and all this other stuff and that stuff exists. And those are the jobs of the future, but there's, there's still like the, the core, we're in such an interesting time to where the future is here. <laughs> you know, we have self-driving cars <laughs> and, um, Online learning is something that is not only possible, but feasible and current. And, uh, you know, I, when I started college, this is so funny when I, you know, people that might not know this, who haven't read my story or whatever, I went to the university of Phoenix during my associates and kind of bachelor's era because I was working full time and doing management. I had a kid on the way or, you know, I was like, had a family and, I needed this, you know, an online approach to kind of continue my education. University of Phoenix uh, and online classes in general was still looked down upon when I was doing it. People were like, oh, you're online educated in college. No good education comes from online. And mm-hmm. now we're now we're at the level where people are debating, you know, how young can we go? Can kindergartners learn online? You know? <laughs> right. And like we, you know, and it, times change incredibly fast. And I think that this whole, the idea of educator as facilitator is a, uh, it's a, it's a reactions, the wrong word. It's a, it's a side effect of that, right? Because it's, it's kids. They need to 
problem solve. They need to, we talk about this all the time on the podcast, making decisions um, is some of the most rigorous activity you can have. Giving kids freedom to make proper decisions, analyze their decisions, evaluate their decisions afterwards, right? In writing and reading and all of this other stuff. That is some of the most rigorous stuff you can have a human being do. And that's why we value it so much in workshop. Um, but I would argue that kids, it's, it's this balance of when do you, when do you have to just say this is how something's done, right? Because there is, like, I, for instance, I follow a person um, on Twitter who his name is Daniel Buck. He's a he's a conservative educator, um, but I think he's very thoughtful. I, I don't agree with like ninety nine percent of what he says, but I find him interesting. Um, I'm gonna have him on Teach Me Teacher eventually, but he so he posted, maybe not now since you said you don't agree. <laughs> no, I had I had his partner um, on the oh, podcast okay. recently who um, they both we we understand each other in a hey we disagree but you're fun to talk to like they're very much okay. a Chastain type of person. Um, right. He the reason he's not on yet is because he's writing a book and he's busy. He just had a kid. Blah 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 blah. He he's got a life, so he's like hanging on Teach Me Teacher. But regardless, he uh, he. Posted and the re- I'm, you're gonna know why I'm bringing this up in just a second. But he posted and said, "You know, the five paragraph essay gets so much flack and people bash it so much, but it's such a useful tool." He was like, "Do people write five paragraph essays in the real world? No, but is it useful to know how to write a paragraph essay?" And he says, "I argue yes." He he made this argument for the I, how many I mean you could literally calculate how many times I've bashed the five paragraph essay. I've been in trainings with Kelly Gallagher and all them who talk about like what, it's so insane to teach this. And here's this person saying it's a valuable tool. It teaches you the structure of something. Yet he he acknowledged that yes, it's limiting. Yes, it's this. Yes, it's this. But it teaches you something that you need to know to move on from that. And I just, in terms of talking direct instruction, that's what it is, right? Direct instruction is something that is not necessarily the cutting edge of pedagogy, the cutting edge of strategy, so to speak. But it is something that provides a much needed service sometimes, maybe like the five paragraph essay. I'm not going to confirm and deny that that is a useful tool, but something that exists to teach something, right? I mean, when you think of the, of direct instruction, I mean, let's talk about this. Let's, let's bring it back to the, the concrete. When, like, when I think about how much instruction that I do, direct instruction, it's probably I, I consider that my mini lessons. Uh, so my mm-hmm. mini lesson of direct instruction, it's usually fifteen to twenty minutes. I usually do not go past that. Um, it's pretty much down to a science these days. Uh, to where I had one of my students last year goes, Cheston, you talk so much. And I go, time me. I guarantee you it'll be 15 minutes. And she timed me. And it was literally 15 minutes and two <laughs> seconds of how long my lesson was. And that, was, that wasn't even like consciously done. But I feel like that is... I love that time, but it's, it's necessary, right? Like, I mean, how, how much time would you say that you provide direct instruction in, in a typical lesson? Well, it depends. I think it changes. I've been known yeah. to be able to talk the whole 55 minutes. However, um, since that was when I was I would younger. never have guessed that. <laughs> no, I, I typically keep it about 15 minutes, maybe 20 sometimes. It really just depends on what, what, what will keep me going is if the students have questions, that's what keeps me going. So I might go as long until the, until I feel like they understand. So some of them will start working and then some will, if you have any questions, please, then I'll come to your, you know, sometimes I'll stop it and just go to their uh, desk and let them ask me or ask me and then, but uh, yeah, about about 15, 20 minutes. I can't say I, I keep it directly at 15, like you said, but I I can do a lecture for about 20 minutes and two, I mean, to 50. I talk a long time. I know you're surprised. <laughs> I mean, do you, in terms of the value though, right? So for how, what do you see the value in direct instruction these days? Do you think that we overplay its, uh, 
negative impact on students? Like, have have we gone too far the other side of pushing, facilitating all of that? Um, to to a degree to where it's we've we've the pendulum has swung too far. Or do you think we're, you know, it, it just depends. Like, is it more nuanced than that? I don't know. I mean, from someone that's experienced it from the the day where you know you talked all class and then assigned homework to what we kind of do now in this hodgepodge. Has the pendulum swung too far? What What is the value of direct and teaching these days? Well, I think direct teaching, the value of it is to make sure that the students have the foundation that they need. Um, so in some cases, it's just faster to get that information to them by telling them than to turn it. So, so you really want to think about your time and where you want to spend the time. So if it's if it's better to just let the students have the information and just tell them and not not make them work for that, but then your actual lesson is them applying what it is you want them to know. To me, I think a shorter time span is better than as far as direct instruction, and then you let them go and it becomes student-centered. I think is a lot better. I think you have a tendency, these students are not geared uh, Jane Healy uh, called it the uh, Sesame Street brain. And that is, you know, where it's short bursts of stuff. And that's really how our brains are now, a lot of the brains are now wired. And that is short bursts of information uh, with a little brain rest and then come back to it sometimes is better because that's how they're they're used to doing it. If you think about the video games and stuff like that, it goes from scene to scene to scene. It's not... You know, I mean, they can stay it a long time, but but you still have levels. You know, it changes even within that game. So um, I, I would think, and plus there's research that shows that usually a teenager can, or they can pay attention to about 20 minutes, but once it hits 20 minutes, it's, you're pretty much, I mean, they've already zoned out. And I think some of them zone out a little bit earlier. So I think if you have to adjust knowing your, Students. Now, what I have a tendency to do, though, is I am more of a, and you've been in my my session, so you know I, I, you're like this. So even when I teach adults, and that is talk a little bit, have them do, then come back, debrief, talk a little bit, have them do, and then I move that lesson along. And then by the time we're finished with that 50 minutes, if you will, then they've actually completed a whole lot or done a whole lot of writing during that time that they had no idea that they were going to get to do. And it's it's more of a burst of direct with work, direct work, direct work. So sometimes uh, some people call that... Um, you know, a, a catch and I release. guess catch and release. Yeah, thanks. Couldn't think of the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, so well, I, think, I do that quite often. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know what's funny is my my teaching has evolved so much over the years to where I used to. Uh, I I was much more catch and release, or like in like the mid time of my teaching to where like my lesson pretty much lasted the whole period, so to speak, to where I would kind of teach and let them do and that would bring them back and let them do and bring them back and let them do. And that was kind of, that was literally how I taught the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, these days it's, it's not like li- the last three years I have been very, almost the exact same in terms of time, about 15, 20 minutes, mini lesson, read 20 minutes and then write for the rest of the time. Sometimes we read for a bit longer, just depends on what happens. But, um, and I've let that reading time and that writing time really blossom, uh, while I conference and stuff. And that it's so funny because I don't, I don't honestly, I see both being very beneficial. I, I, to me, and this started when I was a younger teacher to where I sat with one of, uh, she was Jen Kleiber, you know her. I do. She um she was like one of the first like district educators or whatever that really sat with me and worked on my pedagogy and whatnot. She I've, I've treasured her mentorship for a while, but I've had her on the pod on Teach Me Teacher, but she does a lot of stuff and now she does tons of trainings. But I remember she sat with me, it was like year two, and she was just asking me, she was walking through a lesson with me. 
And I said, you know, as I'm saying this, she, I, I, ta- I remember telling her this. I said, I want kids to read and write more than what they're doing in my class because my class is a reading and writing class. And she goes, that's great. So she goes, we took my lesson. She goes, so where, where can we put more of this on the students? She goes, where can we have more kids doing the writing, more kids doing the reading, more kids doing the work than you? And we've heard that before, right? Like, I think most teachers have been through trains to be like, if kids are working, if you're working harder than the kids, then you're mm-hmm. doing it wrong. Like we've heard that. And I think that mm-hmm. gets, I've said it. Yeah. And I think that gets ballooned up in ways that are, it's kind of, it can be unproductive sometimes because I think it changes things, but on its core, uh, it's true, right? Kids need to be doing the work. They need to be doing the reading and writing. And that's what my class has done. I've, I've done the classroom transformations. I've done the, the big lessons, the catch and release all periods. I've done the long lectures. I, I've done all of it. And what I've kind of come into, at least currently in my teaching, is really just trusting that kids will make good decisions if I set up procedures, processes, and goals correctly combined with strong direct instruction that doesn't last too long. They, they hit these marks. I mean, I put up so many pieces, uh, from this last six weeks, you saw my wallet filled up, Mm -hmm. uh, of all of this wonderful writing from students and they come in and this is how it's a powerful process because they come in and they go, Oh my God, it's new six weeks. And they go, who made the wall? And they go over there and all week we, we were back for three days this week from Christmas break every day during writing. I had a new group of kids looking at that wall, looking at the writing. And I had so many kids go, Oh, I want to write a piece like that. And I went and I went and conference with students and they said, they go, oh, I really want to write a piece like what he did. I, I like what he said here. And I was like, how? Like that that process of making every six weeks an event for kids writing to be there. But now kids are teaching kids. Now kids are being inspired by this. That is a procedure and a process that I created to make that happen. That's not direct instruction, right? Mm-hmm. That is something I've created. And that is my mind in terms of what my workshop is. The direct instruction is so important, but that direct instruction has to fuel what I want the kids to do, right? It has to fuel that independent focus. And I think when you can make those marry, I think that's where a workshop really shines, where your direct instruction fuels and not limits their independent choice. I think that is... That's this shining moment. So it's really not a case of either or. It's how do they complement each other? Well, I think I have to agree with you on that. And I think that's why I don't get too hung up on if I do happen to go too long sometimes, I, I'll i make sure that they have their time. They, my kids have learned that if, if we take a little bit of time here because either they didn't understand it, they had a lot of questions, or they were kind of stalling that day. Then I'll say, okay, well, whatever we didn't get finished, this is what we'll be doing tomorrow. So keep in mind that you need to watch your time. You need to be spending this time reading. And then when you're finished with that, you need to write or vice versa. So I, I try to let them know. So if I, if I spend too much time on one day, then the next day I just let them, that's when I usually let them work quite a bit. Does that make sense? So whatever I don't, so, but I don't do the homework so much. I learned a long time ago that, especially when, with writing, when, you know, when I was younger and stuff, um, I was, everybody was always worried about plagiarism and, you know, people caught, you know, and I've had students copy essays. I mean, we all have, but I do know this when they do most of the writing in my class and I'm busy, uh, conferencing with them and I see the work in progress. I watch them handwrite it. I watch them, you know, I see what they're doing. Then I know within, without a shadow of a doubt that that was their piece originated in my room. So I learned that a long time ago was that I give them time in my room and I will have the confidence that they're actually doing the work and not borrowing the work from other people, so to speak, and turning it in as their own. And so, um, but, so I do think it's important that we give them time, direct instruction, like you said, but give them time to do the work. And if you spend too much time talking one day, then I think the next day you need to give them time to do the work. So you could do it that way. 
So one thing I feel like we would be amiss to not mention as we kind of come to a ending of this episode would be uh, the you kind of hit on this a, se- a little while ago where you talked about your the the time right kids being exposed to screens and their attention span mm-hmm. and whatnot. I think one of the things that has driven the guide away from direct instruction, um, maybe to a large degree is obviously that every kid pretty much has access to the, the more information than any human being has had access to ever. Right. Like we libraries used to exist. These, these, these pieces of information existed to like really the privilege that had the knowledge to do so. And now every human being has access to pretty much the whole existence of human knowledge ever. Right. And so it becomes now, about teaching people how to navigate that complexity rather than teaching them the knowledge of it. Although knowledge, this is where people argue that knowledge is equally as important. You need to know the legacy of ideas, the legacy of this stuff, you know, talking like government or something like that. Like you can't understand democracy without understanding monarchy, right? Like at least if you're talking America, like if you're talking why America is the way it is, you have to have working knowledge of these things. And just because you can Google, you know, King George or whatever does not mean that you understand the concepts and stuff. And that's kind of where direct instruction comes from. But in another thing that you pointed at, and I, I, I had this knowledge, but I, I Googled it ironically enough to get it, which was the fact that our brains are being changed because of technology. So this is a movie uh, statistic, but the, this comes from wired.com, but they say the average shot length of a movie scene was 12 seconds in 1930 and today's average movie scene is 2.5 seconds. So is this right? is so this is coming from like the cuts, right? From example example so 12 to 2 is the average cut of a movie. Uh, scene. So you, I mean, just imagine you put kids in front of, you know, Disney plus these days, their brains are being constantly, uh, wired to experience change to happen in micro doses. TikTok, right? I mean, this is a perfect example. TikTok vine before that YouTube was kind of a symptom, but you, even YouTube videos have been longer, right? YouTube was still like 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 20 minutes, But Vine and TikTok made things 30 seconds, one minute, 15 seconds of clips. And that's what kids do all day, right? They have these really short clips and and these bursts of uh, entertainment, knowledge, whatever they're consuming. And this is what we contend with as teachers. So, you know, for the direct instruction, as valuable as it is, it has to contend with how brains are changing. And this isn't, I I don't think it's a bad thing that brains are evolving. I think it's just times change, right? I mean, this is, (laughs) this is probably why human beings don't live for 200 years because we would go insane because there's so much, there's so (laughs) much change that would happen. But in terms of just the way kids work, you know, I think that what we try to do sometimes, like for instance, our state test that is four hours long, that is so outside of the norm of what kids do every day that you start asking, I don't know, should we start counteracting this to have kids do this? Or should something like a state test or something change in order to be more modern for the human brain? You know what I mean? And I think mm-hmm. it's a complex answer. I have, I've had this debate with our district before, not like a mean debate, but just like a, like a casual debate where, um, one of our uh, district leaders, she came and observed our classroom and her and I just happened to have this conversation about digital versus paper. And she said, well, we're still transitioning, but digital is the future. And I said, well, what about the research about how you read more deeply on paper. Kids comprehend better on paper. Paper is more valuable to this. She goes, yeah, but how long is that going to last? Right. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm of two minds because I, maybe it's because I'm on the edge of that digital divide, right? The iPhone came out when I was in high school. So smartphones really, I'm not fully, I am embedded in that culture, but I'm also not 
as at the same mm-hmm. time. So I, I wonder, like, part of me is like, man, this is, am I just like get off my lawn type of person now? Or am I, uh, it, or is, do I have a valid argument that says we, the, the push for pure digital doesn't always have to be that. Cause I remember when books were, when Kindle really exploded in like 2011, they were like, Oh, paper books are gone. There's going to be no more paper books, but now it's about half and half, half for digital, half for paper, paper books still exist. Barnes and Noble didn't go out of business yet. Right. Like it was the doomsday of paper for a long time and it never happened. So that that's for teaching. I, I wonder if that's true. Like, are we singing the praises of digital in hopes that it would go that way? But it never really does because the human brain never really gets there. We we don't fully evolve that way, so to speak. Or is it inevitable? Will we have these micro lessons all the time? Will everything be digital? Will everything be on screens? And, you know, it's hard to predict, obviously, but I think it's an interesting question. I think it all ties up into this direct versus facilitating conversation for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, going with your uh, the movie clips, uh, there are several students will talk about Okay, so there was a time when I would say, okay, if you haven't read a book, at least analyze a movie. And now I might say that and the kids go, I don't watch movies. They're too long. (laughs) And I'm like, dude, how can a movie be too long? (laughs) I watch three to four hour movies. You know what I mean? Dances with Wolves. I watch movies. And so the thing is, is I'm like, so if they think a movie's too long, then now look at it with this trying to get them to read now that's really too long so i i do think that uh i think you're on to something there uh just based on my own experience in the classroom but i'm like they they do the movies are too long and now you just told me they're really shorter the shorter clips and they, they won't even give it a chance <laughs> Well, that's why, like, what's funny is I love movies that draw out scenes these days. Like, I love, uh, like, Quentin Tarantino, for instance. Like, he is notorious. Like, he'll he'll literally just let a camera sit there, let these characters talk for, like, minutes. (laughs) And you're like, oh, my God. Like, it feels long. But it's it's done purposefully. Because this is what I think human nature does is I think – yeah, things might trend a certain way. Like I'm sure Marvel movies cut every three seconds. I, I just don't doubt it at all because it's such <laughs> a popular medium. But the 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 mediums that are designed to really make us think and whatnot, and I consider education a part of that. You know, breaking the mold, I think, is also interesting. We've talked a lot on this podcast about uh novelty and how the brain loves novelty and how just because your systems might be the same doesn't mean what you do always has to be the same, right? You can engage a kid simply by just changing something small. And sometimes that change might be, look, we're going to focus for a little bit, right? Like I, and I, Mm -hmm. I see value in it. I see value in when kids read for 20 minutes and they almost look like they're going to die after three minutes. That's a good thing that I'm making them focus a little bit longer. You know what I mean? Like, right. And, and uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, there's nothing more beautiful though when they're like that at the beginning, and then and now they can they finally get a book, and then they're like, "What? Can we read longer than tw- it's only 20 minutes? Can we read like the whole period?" That's really a nice, I had a nice so. Thing. When we came back from break, sometimes I sometimes reading is really awful when we come back because kids are so they just want to talk and chat and stuff. This these last three days that we had, we just had a three day week. Uh, kids were sitting there, and every time, without fail, every time I ended reading in each of my blocks, I had a few kids go, "Oh my god, I was just at the good part." It's because they hadn't read all break. <laughs> Right. right. <laughs> but now they've come to they've 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 come to really love that process and stuff. And it's I think that's the interesting thing is, you know, I, I think the moral of our story tonight is really that like the moment you become dogmatic, I think you cripple yourself. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you become you you limit the possibilities. I think it's, you know, like it's cool to know what you believe in and know the research, but also be open to maybe direct instruction is what kids need today. Like, right. Your kids, not just kids in general, but like your students, Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe a long direct instruction lesson is exactly what's needed to shock your kids into engagement. And maybe less is also that, right. Maybe removing a worksheet is something that'll really engage them. Maybe removing a strategy 
mm-hmm. will engage them. Maybe incorporating a strategy will be what engages them. And I think that, you know, ultimately just being a teacher who just listens to the the noise of the classroom, so to speak, right? That listens to what do my kids need today? How do I alter this tomorrow? I think that is, I think that's the answer to this. It's there's this dogmatic approach to this much time, this much, this, this much, this. Yeah. Those are good guidelines, right? It's like working out. Like people say, you know, work out, you know, three to four days a week, do this 30 minutes, whatever. Those are guidelines. You're, as you do things, your body learns things as you do things in your classroom, you know, your kids figure out what works. And the, once you find something that works, capitalize on that momentum. Once the momentum stops, shift and do something else. I think that is, I think that's the beauty of workshop, but I think this is also like, (laughs) if teachers need that encouragement today, do it, change something. If you're, if you're stalled, (laughs) alter, see what happens. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? (laughs) Right. No, I agree. I agree. And don't be afraid to change. It's okay. And then if something doesn't work, that's just a day. Tomorrow, you just do something different. So we had that conversation the other day. We were walking out to we the parking did. lot. We said, you know what? When a lesson really goes bad, the best thing you can think is, you know, this is going to end. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We did have that conversation. Ladies <laughs> <laughs> gentlemen. Know. Oh, my God. This has been the Craft the Draft podcast. That's Pamela Cho. I'm Jacob Chastain. We come to this podcast every single week to talk about reading my workshop because it's what we love, but we also come to just have a great conversation. If you enjoyed this, hit a star button that lets us know how much you enjoyed it. Subscribe so you don't miss anything. We drop an episode every single Friday. If you want to submit a question, go to craftthedraftworkshop.com where you can submit a question. You can also submit it to me in my various social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you hang out and follow the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming this week and having this conversation. What do you think about direct instruction? Do you do it? Do you not? How much time do you put into it? I don't know. Let me know. But know that we are here for you. 